after the election, seeing how the big lie was being spread, watching the events of January 6th, I became extremely worried about future elections, especially in far-right areas like Southwest Florida. Once I retired and became a full-time resident and registered voter in Florida, I applied to be a poll worker. I attended poll worker training just last week and feel elections in my county will be run properly, but I also feel better knowing I will be a part of the process. Disinformation about the 2020 presidential election is going grassroots. Conspiracy theories about election results and voter fraud have gone from the Twitter sphere to in-person events and door-to-door canvassing. An NPR investigation found at least 300 of these grassroots gatherings of election deniers taking place around the country since January 6, 2021. And it has elections officials worried. Here's Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Whenever there is an appearance uh, in which the former president or Lindell or others come out attacking our system, we know to expect an uptick in threats and add additional security as a result. Today, we're looking at what this movement means for our elections and our democracy. This conversation is part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations around the country, including KUNC in northern Colorado. Through our partnership, we look at the ways our democracy is being tested and what people are doing about it. After the break, we get into the impact grassroots disinformation campaigns are having on the safety and security of our elections. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, you can join us for future conversations by downloading the 1A Vox Pop app and leaving us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions. And you can be matched with your therapist in under 48 hours. NPR listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's jump into our conversation on the impact of grassroots disinformation campaigns. Joining us now from Greeley, Colorado, is Republican County Clerk Carly Coppice. Carly, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by Republican Justin Roebuck. He's the Ottawa County Clerk and Register of Deeds in West Olive, Michigan. Justin, welcome. Thanks so much, Jen. It's good to be here. And joining us from Washington is Miles Parks. He covers voting and elections for NPR. Miles, it's great to have you back. Hey, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. So, Miles, first, what happens at these events? So it kind of spans the spectrum, to be honest. Some of these events are giant kind of uh, election conspiracy conferences where dozens or hundreds of people gather in uh, a big convention convention center and kind of go over all of the latest conspiracies and kind of swap stories. And then it kind of goes all the way down to like the backyard event with a dozen people or 20 people where what one of these, what we call in our story, election denial influencers maybe shows up people bring their own chairs, bring beers, and kind of listen to this person talk for an hour, an hour and a half about explaining how the election was stolen, even though obviously we know that it was not stolen. But kind of a lot of times these have PowerPoints, they have all of this like very confusing, hard to read data uh, to convince these people 
who were in attendance that the election was indeed stolen. And then they usually, these events almost always end with action items. You know, go to the meeting of your county commissioners. Go knock on doors in your neighborhood. Uh, you know, something that people, after the, they get kind of riled up by all this misinformation, some kind of action they can take to try to, quote unquote, save their democracy. And who are the key figures hosting these events? So... Our NPR investigation tracked four of them. Uh, Mike Lindell, who a lot of listeners are probably familiar with, is the founder of MyPillow. And then a couple other guys, a guy named Seth Keschel, David Clements, and a guy named Doug Frank. These are all people who were not uh, in the public sphere before the 2020 election, but they're people who have kind of made a career out of taking the election fraud myth uh, and building a presence online and in person around it. They all have kind of different angles that they come to it with. Doug Frank, for instance, is a former science and math high school teacher, and he uses is kind of big on being kind of a data expert. And he always he kind of shows this formula that shows how the 2020 election was stolen in all of these different counties using data. Uh, and so these are people who previously were kind of just regular people but have used the election lie to kind of catapult themselves into a kind of a more prominent role. Well, in the case of Douglas Frank, what do elections officials have to say about the data he uses? Um, I think we, you know, I think we can hear from Carly uh, on that. I talked to her about this for a while because I think when I've talked to election officials, um, they're really frustrated because the data, the methodology that he uses to kind of explain that the election was stolen to be completely honest, there's just nothing to it. You, it kind of takes about five or ten minutes for an election official to kind of go through it. It's it's kind of this – he kind of retreads a lot of old um, election fraud myths, basically overlaying census data, a lot of times out-of-date census data on top of – more up-to-date election information and kind of just mixes a bunch of different kinds of data to do what he calls proving the election was stolen. But uh, again, it was not. Carly, I'd love to hear from you on this because there have been several of these events in Colorado. What's been your experience in Weld County? Uh, My experience has been quite the same as probably everybody across the nation. Uh, We definitely, after every type of event, uh, I see an uptick in emails and phone calls uh, to my office and myself. I get a hit up on social media a lot. Uh, you know, I kind of jokingly say the best six hours of my life over the last year and a half were when uh, Facebook was down during that time. Uh, but it's it's definitely been, you know, we, we absolutely, when I see something scheduled or I see something on social media, like we're going to host this event, uh, I know within a few hours after it ending, uh, I'm definitely going to be receiving, uh, as they say, you know, their call to actions. Uh, and as far as Dr. Frank, yeah, he has made a couple of appearances in Colorado. And I've had to try to break it down and explain to people just how incorrectly he does not understand how to read the simple excel spreadsheet of colorado's voter registration rules uh, and he does use 2010 census data and i am in well county i am the fastest growing county in the state and one of the top in the nation and so from 2010 to uh, right now in 2022 uh, my numbers are drastically different. And so for him to use that data and then not also understand how to properly filter our voter registration rolls, uh, it definitely has created some interesting conversations with people. Uh, and I try to be as respectful as I can to them because I understand that they're passionate and I try to uh, explain to them uh, in the most respectful way I can, uh, even though I'm not necessarily always receiving that type of level of respect uh, coming from them. Justin, has your office in Michigan also been the target of misinformation? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very similar to, you know, what Carly is explaining, you know, we're consistently getting, you know, requests from uh, individuals uh, via social media, having a lot of conversations with folks in the same vein of, you know, people who are just concerned. They're concerned about the integrity of the process. They hear these um, stories from individuals and they see these graphs that are, again, uh, you know, very sometimes convoluted in the way that things are put together and the way that information is put together. And I think one of the things that I like to do is, I, I mean, I, I tell people off the bat, we have the same desire and that is election integrity and the security of our process matters to me and I know it matters to you. And I, I really believe that that is the case in, in the vast majority of the conversations that I'm having with our constituents. Um, and the other thing too is elections, you know, actually sometimes the truth is pretty simple. Um, as Carly was saying too, election data is pretty simple. We are like uh, Weld County in Michigan, Ottawa County is actually the fastest growing county in the state of Michigan as well. So we're experiencing the same type of thing where we have growth on our census and some shifts in our voting uh, behavior as well. Um, you know, we've gone from a 70% Republican county, and that's ticked down a little bit. In the last um, cycle, uh, President Trump received 59% of the vote in Ottawa County. And so there are some reasons that are fairly simple um, as to why that margin has shifted. Do you find that people are receptive to the information you present them with when you when you try to push back on the disinformation they're believing? I think it's a mix. I think sometimes a lot of it depends on personal relationship. And, you know, as election officials in, in communities, it's so important for us to engage on the personal level and for us to be transparent and open and accessible. And I do think that does matter. I mean, we're, we're actually hosting a town hall later this evening, specifically on election integrity and election security. Um, so I think it's important for us to be available in our community and to not hide or back down from confronting these, these myths. Um, but I also see the other side of it as well, where people have really chosen uh, a path in terms of what they want to believe and understand about the election process. Justin, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. And let's add another voice to the conversation. Professor Rick Hessen is director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project at UCLA Law. He's also the author of Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. Uh, Professor Hessen, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. Now, you primarily focus on disinformation being shared online, but what are the challenges in combating this new strategy of in-person presentations? So I think this just moves things to the next level. Uh, What we saw in the 2020 election was an unprecedented effort by Donald Trump and his allies to convince millions of Republican voters that the 2020 election was stolen. And, you know, at first I was kind of hopeful that this strategy was more about assuaging his ego than anything else. But it's pretty clear that we now have a movement um, in which many people believe this is a, a core value of what it means to be a Republican. In fact, there was polling from CNN last September showing 59% of Republicans saying believing the lie that the election was stolen is a core part of what it means to be a Republican. And that has just spilled over into the real world from the kind of online spreading of disinformation. And it's led to the kinds of things 
uh, that Miles has been reporting about and that you're talking about on your show. Uh, Let's listen to a clip of two of the election fraud influencers you've been following, Miles. This is Mike Lindell and Douglas Frank, that Ohio math teacher. When I was uh, interviewing everyone, Dr. Douglas G. Frank here has more stuff than you could even put into a a 10-hour documentary. So what I wanted to do was a separate one here. This is so important to our country. I want to get this one out right away. Miles, how are these efforts being funded? So that is kind of the many million dollar question, I think. I mean, I think it's clear. Mike Lindell has made it very clear that he has spent uh, what he says are millions and millions of dollars um, kind of pushing this in all of these different ways. But I think that is the question that has not really 100 percent been answered. I mean, I asked Seth Keschel that when we were emailing back and forth ahead of this story um, and didn't get a clear answer and haven't really got a clear answer for any of the four uh, people we tracked as well as um, I want to be clear that we kind of picked these four because they have been all over the country and done these hundreds of events. But the kind of web of election denial influencing is much broader than just these four. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of people who have kind of started taking uh, these theories on tour. And it's not always clear, or I would say in most cases, it's not clear who is actually financially backing this. And are people paying to attend these events or are they free to the public? In some cases, there's kind of like a pay at the door, you know, suggested donation. In some cases, you do have to pay to get in. And in a lot of cases, uh, these people, some of these influencers are kind of using the election fraud narrative to kind of build their profile. But then you'll also see them have ads in their podcasts, for instance, or um, when they're doing a live event, maybe um, shill for a body lotion or for, you know, go buy a T-shirt from this X company. So there there are clearly like some (laughs) capitalistic influences kind of mixed in here, but it's not clear how much, uh, you know, money they're making off Mm -hmm. of off of election denial, clearly. Well, a recent poll from the Benison Strategy Group surveyed roughly 600 elections officials and over half expressed concern about their safety and the safety of their colleagues. Nearly a third reported that they know someone who quit over safety concerns. Carly, do you have concerns for your safety or the safety of your staff? I think we always have to have those level of concerns. I mean, even prior to 2020, safety was always in the front of my mind because uh, I never wanted a safety issue to be a reason why, you know, any of my staff or any of our great volunteer election judges or even voters uh, have, you know, concern about coming in and participating in our in our government. And so, uh, you know, since since 2020, I know that I've been fortunate we were able to have a new building constructed and we already had that kind of in the plans when we were doing that in 2020. I do know some of my other clerks, they have gone to the extent of putting in bulletproof glass. They've taken advantage of the Department of Homeland Security's free site assessments and we have gotten really great recommendations from them. So we're very thankful for uh, the Department of Homeland Security offering those for free to election officials uh, around the nation. And so we we are consistently always trying to have those meetings with our law enforcement. I have a great sheriff here in Will County, uh, and he's always willing to make sure that during election time, he is communicating with all of the local municipal uh, law enforcement as well. Uh, something that we continue to do and we've done even prior to 2020 is, you know, during election time, they go around and make sure that they're kind of monitoring our drop boxes and our voting locations at a little higher um, revolution on kind of their driving routes. And so we're going to continue to do 
do that, we're always going to continue to monitor because, again, one thing I do not want to happen is anything to a voter or election judges and especially my, my amazing staff. Uh, and so I want to make sure that I keep that in my front of mind, uh, even though I've done as much as I possibly can to keep the target on myself and keep my staff behind me really not exposing them to the public as much uh, and really, you know, keeping the target on me uh, and continuing to practice good uh, self-awareness and, you know, being out in the public as much as I am, making sure that I am cognizant of, of it and uh, we'll just continue to move forward uh, and I'll continue to support uh, anybody and everybody that has a concern for them and continue to work with our local law enforcement. Carly, I have to say it, it's striking to hear you say you are trying to keep the target on yourself. Um, and, and you sound very even killed about all of this. Um, what are you hearing from your staff about their concerns around safety? Well, I do have meetings with them to make sure and check in on them to see how they're doing. And, uh, you know, they, they do appreciate that, you know, it's not their names that are being put out there mm. on the social media and in the emails. Uh, and they, they are grateful for what we're doing. Uh, you know, they do see and understand that the tensions are very, very high. And, you know, they, you know, I, we try to remind them uh, you know, we've brought in our sheriff's department for active shooter training and uh, just some other good ideas for them to be aware when they do walk outside. And so they do feel that we are doing as much as we can to give them the tools to remain as safe as they can be. Uh, but they, you know, they know that I'm doing everything I can to make sure that their names aren't being said in these uh, election deniers mouths. And it is mine because uh, I, I do believe that is one of my responsibilities uh, as as the elected and the the one that everything lands on my shoulders anyways as as the department head and the elected official. So that's kind of what we've been seeing. Miles, in your reporting, what did you learn about the safety concerns and, and how it's impacting elections officials? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that a lot of people don't think about when they hear that election officials, uh, people in charge of voting are receiving these sorts of threats on a in some cases, especially when you talk about people in swing states, we're talking about a daily basis, if not in some cases, an hourly basis that they're receiving emails or phone calls. Uh, these are not highly paid people like that. That's the other part of this about trying to keep um, these are some of you know, these are professional staff who are paid, uh, you know, in, in more some of these rural counties, 40 or 50 thousand dollars. It just doesn't make any sense why a person who is highly educated and very capable, like uh, Professor Hassan said, these are people who are capable of running this very, very difficult job. And so if they are that capable, why would you then choose a profession unless you you know, completely devoted to the concept of democracy? But as a human being, why would you choose to be in a profession that pays you less than other jobs would? you know, subjects you to all of these threats and is also, you know, incredibly difficult with all of these kind of high risks. It just, um, it, it kind of makes sense logically when you think of it that way, why we are seeing a lot of election workers kind of rethink their decision. Now, none of the four election deniers behind these events we're describing are elected officials. But Miles, what kind of support are they finding among elected officials? 
Yeah, one of the most interesting findings as we were doing this investigation, kind of seeing where all of these election denial influences were going, were how often they were coming into contact with elect, uh, elected officials. We found at least 78 different events were, were held with, with these people where they were able to, in a lot of cases, have long conversations with people who are members of Congress, uh, who are, are speaking, in a lot of cases, speaking before or after um, elected officials. And then in some cases, we saw them actually try to set up meetings with people who have some role uh, in the election process. We got audio of a meeting in Ohio between some staff from the Ohio Secretary of State's office and Douglas Frank and another election denier, where basically, if you listen to this audio, it's two hours of Douglas Frank basically trying to convince uh, this these voting officials to allow him to have people come uh, look at their equipment to do um, to basically convince them of his election misinformation. They didn't budge in that instance, but it was it's really kind of chilling to hear uh, these people get an audience with people who have such a direct role in in administering elections. We'll be back with more on the impact of grassroots election disinformation on our democracy in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Pat in Chicago. I've been uh, an election worker for the Board of Elections here, and I've uh, worked for an elected official as a poll watcher to ensure everything is going smoothly. If you're actually seeing the process by which the election is facilitated, you're going to see it's just a bunch of people doing the best they can, and there is a lot of room for improvement. We need to be putting more money into elections uh, to make sure that they go smoothly and that our democracy is upheld. Carly, when I think back to you, uh, you know, telling us that you have spent hours speaking to people about the election processes, you have limited time. I know you have limited resources. So what more do election officials at the county level need to help address the problem of election disinformation? Well, I definitely agree uh, that we could always use more funding. <laughs> we can always use more funding. But uh, for that, you know, what we continue to do is one thing that when I was the president of the Colorado Clerks Association last year, we pulled together our top four initiatives that we would like to see improved and really kind of focus on that area. Uh, we continue to encourage watchers. Uh, we continue to provide tours during the election. So I invite the public to come in and I give them, it's about an hour and a half tour and I literally walk them through everything and show them all the checks and balances uh, with the actual great volunteers, uh, judges uh, behind me doing exactly what I'm saying. Uh, posting videos, again, showing the behind the scenes, making sure that they understand that, yes, I may have really uh, tall, red, sparkly high heels, but there is no uh, you know, man behind the curtain. There's no Wizard of Oz here. And we try to just continue to educate as much as we can. Uh, and again, definitely, uh, you know, that was said earlier, we try to target that opportunity group is kind of how I refer to it. Because, I mean, we know there are certain people that I'm just never going to break through, but absolutely continue to try and reach uh, that opportunity group uh, with a proper education. Uh, we can definitely use def more outside ideas. Uh, I am only one person and, and I can think of a lot of things, but there are a thousand different ways to get to our end goal, which is, again, trying to restore the confidence in the election. And so uh, having partnerships is fantastic and, and 
very much welcome uh, to boast and boost what we're trying to get out there because I am not Donald Trump. And so I don't have a loud voice, even though I am a Republican. Uh, he has definitely a louder voice than me. Uh, so try to help amplify us, uh, not only in our local area, but even in our state, uh, and then also across the nation as well to, again, try and have that professionalism and, as we kind of like to say, adult-in-the-room presence uh, for these conversations. Rick, I'm hearing a few different issues uh, that we're laying out here. One is the spread of disinformation, but then there's also this issue of intimidation and threat among, uh, against rather, um, elections officials or, I mean, if someone just showed up to my door to ask me how I voted, (laughs) I, I don't know how I would receive that. So what are some of the possible solutions first to the election disinformation problem? Well, the first thing is what I think we heard Carly say that she's doing before, which is providing accurate information to voters about what's going on and making it clear to voters uh, that this is official information. This is really important online. And so uh, one of the recommendations, uh, an ad hoc group of ours back in 2020, when we're looking to shore up the election process, one of our key recommendations was that all election officials should be verified on social media so that people looking for official information know that it's official. You're obviously not going to convince the conspiracy theorists, but there are a lot of people in the center. They hear uh, that there are problems uh, with elections. They don't know what to believe. So for those people, it's important to be able to reach them with accurate information. It's also important for election officials to be transparent. There should be processes for bipartisan and nonpartisan observers to understand how the process works and to watch the actual tabulation of votes. Uh, people should be responsive, but you can't let... Um, the inquiries to kind of overtake election offices, and we're hearing this around the country, hours and hours being spent trying to deal with over and over again with false conspiracy theories, and you can't allow the intimidation of election workers. And so one of the things I hope is that Congress is going to act, and this is one of the bipartisan proposals that's that's floating out there now, to provide more protection for election officials and election workers. You can't run an election if the people running the election are themselves afraid for their personal safety. Miles, in your reporting, what have you found across the country when it comes to the number of people who are willing to volunteer to help with elections? You know, with with the poll watcher and the poll worker problem specifically, it has been a little harder to parse. It's not necessarily the same as the election official, you know, the numerous election officials we're seeing retiring or leaving the profession. I think there are a lot of people over the last two years who have seen um, the kind of efforts to subvert the election and have been really motivated by that and have signed up to volunteer. At the same time, we are seeing groups that are biased and that are kind of in this idea of trying to find fraud or intent on that there is fraud and so then are training people to be poll watchers or election workers. So you're kind of seeing both sides of the coin there. And I will say that is, you know, there. when I talk to election officials, they say, yeah, one of the best ways to fight this is getting these people who are curious and maybe suspicious about the election process to be poll workers. But that can also be a double-sided coin because if you put people who uh, are intent or are positive that um, there is fraud, then you kind of introduce this potential insider threat issue or you p- 
potentially have people who are biased, don't really know what they're watching, uh, and then, you know, go and tweet something out that, oh, I saw somebody put a ballot in a box, and that's a sign of fraud when they don't maybe understand that that was, that is in the rules that that ballot is supposed to go there or something like that. So we're kind of seeing a lot of different things happening at the poll watcher and at the poll worker level. Uh, Rick, I just want you to to frame this for us because coming away from this conversation, I'm I'm very sobered <laughs> about what's happening in the country right now around elections and our democracy. What are the stakes here? What do we really need to understand about where we are? Well, the stakes are enormous. Uh, the uh, 2020 election could be seen as the low point in modern American democracy, or it could be seen as a test run for 2024. And, and I'm afraid it's likely to be the latter. Um, this show was mostly about people who believe the false claims that the election was stolen and are, are getting involved uh, at the local level and in, in agitating about this issue. But I think much of the leadership behind this is motivated for political and financial reasons, laying the groundwork so that the actual winner of the 2024 election will not be able to take office. And, and there are lots of paths by which an election can be subverted. And so we need kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach. And we need a bipartisan approach, an approach that brings together state and local election officials along with the rest of society to figure out how is it that we can assure that we can have a, a free and fair election in 2024 in the United States, a conversation I never thought we would have to have. And, and it's just a... Uh, you know, a reflection on how low uh, the United States has fallen in terms of its commitment to democracy over the last half decade. That's Rick Hassan. He's the director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project at UCLA Law. Also with us today, Miles Parks. He covers voting and elections for NPR. And Carly Coppice. She's a county clerk and recorder in Weld County, Colorado. Carly, Professor Hassan, Miles, thank you for this conversation. This conversation was part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations around the country, including KUNC in northern Colorado. We're looking at the ways our democracy is being tested and what people are doing about it. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.